In May of 1940, the Second World War had been fought for nearly eight months. Great Britain had sent uh, the British Expeditionary Force, the BEF, to aid France in defending against the Germans. However, uh, this defense ultimately failed, and the British Army retreated back to the port city of Dunkirk in order to attempt to get across the English Channel and return back to England. Over 300,000 soldiers were pushed back against the channel. So they had the Germans on one side, the English Channel on the other. And the situation well, might have seemed a little bit hopeless for the soldiers, especially those who were waiting to get on the ships, who were in the back of the lines to get in, to get on those ships. They had to wait over a week for a rescue. And again, the, during this time, there would be Times when the German planes, they would uh, bomb the town, they would bomb the docks. I mean, you can see a picture here of uh, the, uh, that's an actual picture from Dunkirk, just lined up and with no really, really nowhere to go. There's a Christopher Nolan movie, that's how I first kind of learned of, of Dunkirk, that was based on this situation. It really shows from the soldiers' perspectives this sense of restlessness, this desperation to get out of this, um, what could have been a hopeless situation. And so you've got the Germans on one side pushing you toward the channel. You've got the, the channel on the other. The British Navy is trying to get the soldiers off and evacuated, but their large ships can't really get close because of the beaches. These British soldiers might have been in what seemed to be a hopeless situation, but there was a plan to rescue them. They might have felt that this rescue was taking too long, that they would never make it to the boats, and some, many didn't, but most would be rescued. Because the British put hundreds of privately owned boats, some even driven by their owners, across the channel to aid with the evacuation. These smaller boats could get to where the soldiers were in the shallower waters and on the beaches. And so they could move these soldiers to the larger ships or even taking them all the way back home to England. These soldiers in the midst of a hopeless situation, were rescued. In the end, 338,000 troops were safely returned to England. Now, have you ever felt like that in your life, where you've been in a situation where you've just felt like it was hopeless, like you're backed into a corner, you've got the enemy surrounding you, you've got nowhere to go, and the situation just seems bleak? Maybe you've been there in the past, or maybe you're there right now. Even if you found yourself in this place that seems as if there is no escape and that it's hopeless, I want you to know that there is hope. We're beginning a new series today where we are going to be looking at the letter of 1 Peter. And we are calling the series Everyday Hope. And so if you have your Bibles, you want to open them up to 1 Peter. It's near the back of the book. Um, Of course, if you're doing it on your phone, pretty easy to find. But this is where we're going to be camping out for the next couple of months. And so if you want to earn a gold star, you can read ahead too. Um, it, it's not a long, not a long letter, and, uh, but it's just packed with all kinds of uh, good stuff for us to dive deep into. So today we're going to kind of go through the introduction part of the letter. And so let's start with the first couple of verses, 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been uh, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. So the letter of 1 Peter, because I like to give a little bit background information as we get into some of these uh, series, but that, especially when we're going through a book. But the letter of 1 Peter is written by an early follower of Jesus. His name was Peter, oddly enough. Um, he calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ here. And that basically just means that he was an eyewitness to Christ. He was given direct authority by Jesus to speak on his behalf after Jesus returned to heaven. And so for a little bit of background information on Peter, he was a fisherman originally who was one of the first people who was called by Jesus to be one of his followers. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 4. And Peter uh, ends up becoming fairly prominent among the 12 disciples and the, the apostles. And he often serves as a spokesperson for them throughout the Gospels, those four biographies of Jesus in the beginning of the, of the New Testament. Peter can be seen also as uh, somewhat hot-headed and impetuous at times. Uh, you know, he's, he's always seeming to come quick with an answer or a fight at times. But there, there's one thing that's always certain with Peter is that he loves the Lord. He, you see that throughout, he, that he absolutely loves the Lord. And so, according to Peter's introduction, this letter is written to God's elect, which just simply means that it's writing it to Christian believers who were both uh, Jewish and Gentile believers, as best we can tell. These believers are scattered out through the areas of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are all just regions in uh, what we uh, call Asia Minor, Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And Peter is addressing them as exiles. This word could also be translated as strangers in a foreign land, or alien, or you might even say something like immigrants in today's language. And while they might be aliens in a foreign land, Peter states that they have been chosen by God, they are sanctified or set apart through the work of the Spirit to be obedient to Christ. And he's writing this group of people in order to encourage them in difficult times times of trials, persecution, and suffering. Peter uses the first part of the letter to give us the theme for the entire letter. And so we want to look at that starting in verse 3, where he writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy has given us, a, given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who, through, for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So Peter begins this letter with what is commonly called in the, the academic term, I mean, it's a eulogy. And the, word, the, the reason that we call it a eulogy is because one of the words that he uses is the word that we get eulogy from in Greek. Now, it's not the typical eulogy that we think of when we think of a funeral, because in, in a funeral eulogy, we're, we're praising, we're saying good things about the person who has just passed. Well, in this eulogy, we are saying good things and praising God. Praise or blessed be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's what Peter says right here. That this praise be God. Blessed be God. It would be familiar to the Jewish listeners as it is said throughout the Old Testament many, many times. But Peter makes it a distinctly Christian thing here by adding that God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this first sentence is the main point that all the other verses up to verse 12 point back to. They, they point back to this verse, verse 3. In, in the Greek, verses 3 through 12 are actually just one long sentence, nice run-on sentence, um, where you've got the main point, then everything else points back to that main point. So the whole point of this section that prepares us for the rest of the letter is, praise be to God. And so why? Why? Because in his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope. And this living hope comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. As followers of Jesus, through God's mercy and grace, we are given a new birth. Jesus spoke about this when he talked with a man named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. John 3, 3 says that Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And he goes on to explain that this is a spiritual birth. It is a birth that is done by and through the Holy Spirit. And it is through this spiritual birth as new creations that we are given a new hope, a living hope. This is a hope born of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He has conquered death for you and for me. And it's not some fantasy kind of hope. It's not some pie in the sky kind of hope. This is a true and living hope in a living Savior in Jesus. And because of this new spiritual birth, we now have an inheritance that has been promised to us. And this is it's a pretty amazing inheritance because it's eternal. It can't perish. It doesn't spoil. It never fades. It is an inheritance that is waiting on us in heaven as followers of Jesus. Then Peter writes, and he's telling his readers that as believers, through their faith, they are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last times. God is protecting his followers, either until he returns or they go home to him. God protects us. He shields us. Now, does that mean everything's going to go all smooth sailing down easy street, you know, in this life that we live? Uh, Of course not. I think we all see, and deep down we all know, that this world is a broken world. It's one where we have trials, and we might suffer. I mean, we just spent the last three months looking at trials that Christians face. So now I wouldn't necessarily say that it's physical harm that God is shielding us from, but it's spiritual. We are guarded, and this word is like continual guarding. uh, guarding. It's constant. And it's going to happen until the coming of salvation. So you are continually being protected by God. And your inheritance is being protected by God. So God's protecting you. But, but what about those trials? Well, let's talk about those trials that we face. Peter talks about those in verse 6. 
He says, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So in all this, in the mercy of God and your new birth, in the living hope of Jesus and his resurrection, in this inheritance, in this protection, being shielded by God, in all this you greatly rejoice, Peter says. We can rejoice and we have joy now because we can see the promise. We see the hope. But what about those trials? As we said over the last few months, you know, trials are a part of life here on earth. And while we're going to go through them, it can be difficult to see the bigger picture. Like while we're in those trials, it's hard to see the bigger picture. And Peter begins writing this letter about the hope, the glory, the inheritance, the promises of God for believers to remind his believers, to remind his readers of that bigger picture. But he knows that life doesn't always go easy. He knows his readers are likely facing trials of their own. And so he acknowledges that for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. Again, it's likely that you're going to face trials in your life and they will grieve, uh, you will grieve during those trials while you're going through those. Whatever they are, whether it's the death of a loved one, the uncertainty of an illness, the loss of a job, and, and so many more things that can attack us and afflict us. But grief and joy can exist together in the Christian life. As one commentator writes, Peter thus shows simultaneous grief and joy to be normal in the Christian life. Grief arises because of the many difficulties encountered in this fallen world, but faith looks to the unseen reality beyond this present brief existence and rejoices. And so we're going to face trials, but we can experience joy because we know our Savior and we know what he has planned for us. But why would, why would we go through these trials? Why do we have to go through these trials? Well, in verse 7, I think Peter gives us the purpose for believers experiencing trials. And here's what he says. These have come, these trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire. It may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. The first thing we see is that that trials come to prove the genuineness of your faith. It can be pretty easy to have faith when things are going well. When life is relatively easygoing, when you're not facing trials, You've got few concerns. Faith is something that can come kind of naturally to you. You know, when life is good, and you're like, you know what? I am blessed. God has, is, is blessing me with, with good health, good fortune, great family life, whatever it is. God is blessing me with these things. But somebody's true faith may not appear until some or even all of that is taken away. It may not appear until you face trials and hardships that are out of your control. True, genuine faith may not show up until faith is all you have left. As I was preparing for this message, I found lyrics to a song which said, Faith isn't faith till it's all you hold, till there's no easy answers in your control. Trials come to prove the genuineness of your faith. 
It gets tested and refined under fire like gold. But, like Peter says, faith has far more worth than gold. Because although gold is refined in a fire, it is, it is still a limited resource, both in the amount of it and time. Gold is not eternal. But a believer's genuine faith in God is. Your faith is precious. It's also priceless. And so, yes, you will face trials, but those trials, they are shaping you. They are refining your faith. They're peeling away all the layers until it's only your genuine faith that remains. And that genuine faith is you being able to put your full trust in God, no matter what you're facing. Your full, utter trust is in the Lord. When trials and temptations come, you know that they are only temporary because you are eternal and you have an eternal inheritance. You know that God is there protecting you. While you may suffer physical or even emotional injuries, he is still with you, always with you to shield you and to keep you close to him. Even sometimes when it feels like he's far away, not quick to answer your prayers or that you've been through this trial for a long time, you've just been going through it, he is still close to you, shielding you. And as Peter says, as your faith is proven, that will also result in praise and glory and honor when Christ is revealed. As one writer writes, uh, while their faithfulness to God may be why they are not receiving any praise, glory, or honor from their society. That, some, that same faithfulness will ultimately result in praise, glory, and honor when all is said and done. Therefore, the very experiences that cause them distress because they are Christians should also cause them joy because they are Christians. They rejoice with a joy that is beyond words and that has been glorified even by the dark circumstances in which they possess it. And so we move on to the final part of our opening passage, which speaks um, the joy of salvation. So we continue with verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter begins by speaking about the relationship between the believer and Jesus. He writes about how his readers, they've never seen Jesus. And he, but even though they've never seen him, they still love him. That verb love, again, it's a continual action. It gives us the understanding that their relationship is, is one that is daily with Christ. And this is what faith is all about, and it's no different today. Jesus lived around 2,000 years ago. None of us have seen Jesus in person, and yet we love him. And Peter expands on this in the next part of the verse where he says that even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. The Christian faith is one of just that. It's faith. We didn't witness Jesus walking on this planet. We did not hear his teachings. We did not see the miraculous work he performed when he was on earth. We were all brought to the faith of Jesus through different ways, through different experiences, through different methods. And yet, uh, for the followers of Jesus here today, what Peter says is absolutely true. 
we believe in him and we are filled with a joy that we really don't understand that we can't really express. Jesus himself spoke about this to his apostles in John's gospel. He was speaking to Thomas who needed to see the physical body of the resurrected Jesus. And he believed once he saw the physical body. But then Jesus said to him, Because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We've not seen Jesus, but we trust him. We believe in him. We are blessed because of that. We believe what is written in this book is true. That Jesus is God made flesh, that he came to die and take our punishment so that we may be reconciled to God. Peter concludes this thought by adding another aspect of our inexpressible joy, the receiving of the glorious end of our faith, the salvation of our souls. There are two very real possibilities for our eternal destiny. Either we stay as enemies of God and, or we accept the gift of Christ and follow Jesus. Should we continue the path of the former, we will be separated from God entirely for eternity in the last judgment. But as followers of Jesus, we are saved from this, and we will spend eternity in God's kingdom with Jesus on his throne. That is our hope. That is the promise that Christ gives us, knowing that we are saved. That gives us the inexpressible and glorious joy. Finishing the sections, Peter speaks on salvation. 1 Peter 1, verses uh, 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was come to you, that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. One writer says this about that, the salvation believers experience, the salvation believers experience now which will be consummated in the future, was also prophesied in the past. Believers in Christ represent the fulfillment of that prophecy. Looking back to the Old Testament prophets, many looked forward to the day when the Messiah, the King, would come. Peter writes that they searched intently to understand the time, the circumstances that would lead to the Messiah. But, of course, as we all know, God doesn't necessarily work in our timing to let us figure everything out. Most would have wanted to see this for themselves, but none of them were able to. He writes that even angels long to look into these things. The whole point of this section is that the original readers, they lived in an amazing time when the fulfillment of the prophecies that had been around for thousands of years that they would have studied growing up, that were in their scriptures, all of that had come true. And, and we are also living during those times. And we may be even in better times because we have the entire canon of Scripture available to us. Not just the Old Testament, like they had, but the Old and New Testaments. Thomas Schreiner writes that the privilege of enjoying and anticipating, anticipating sal 
salvation comes to the forefront. Old Testament prophets saw it from afar, and angels also marvel when gazing upon what God has done in Christ, while the Petrin readers, the, the readers who are reading Peter, actually get to experience it. This opening section in Peter's letter, it's the basis for everything that comes after it. Throughout this letter, which again, I would recommend reading a few times as we're going through it, throughout it, you're going to see transition words like therefore or dear friends, now, and in the same way. And these transitions are transitions from this opening passage. Like the whole book just continues to point back to this passage. The world we live in is in disarray. We see the effects of sin in the world daily as we turn on the news, check our social media feeds, or even just talking with a friend. You see the hurts, the pains, the frustrations. You see everything that sin has wrecked on this world. And you feel it within yourselves. And this world could feel hopeless as it is. It feels like those British soldiers on the beach in Dunkirk, just waiting for the enemy to attack you and and hoping for a rescue that seems absolutely impossible. And yet, Peter, in his letter to persecuted Christians, shows us hope, and that hope is Jesus Christ. He is the living hope who we rejoice in. The living hope who provides us protection in the trials we face. The living hope through whom we find salvation. Jesus Christ, our everyday hope. If you haven't made the decision to give your life to Jesus, then I want to invite you to deeply consider that today. And we would love to talk with you about it. You can find me, Pastor Rick, David, I mean any of us would love to talk with you about that. And so... This is just the start. <laughs> We're going to do this for the next couple of months. This will go through October. Um, and as we just continue to dive into this, we're going to see the everyday hope that Jesus provides us. Would you pray with me as we close? Heavenly Father, Lord, I just uh, I come to you today just thankful for that hope that you provide us. That you loved us so much that you sent your son here to die on a cross for us. But it wasn't that he stayed there. It wasn't just that he took our sins, and that's so important. But it, it's not just that he took them there, but it's that he, he left them there. The sins that we've committed now, even 2,000 years later, that we left those sins there, and, and then he was buried, and then three days later he came out of that tomb alive. And it's just so amazing that you put that plan into place, that you executed it to perfection because you are perfect, Lord. And that you have offered us the opportunity to not come to you through any of our righteousness, but through yours. Because it's the only way it was going to work. So Lord, we thank you. We thank you for that hope that we can lean on every day. And we just ask all of this in Jesus' name.